Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. You've heard it on the podcast so many times and I'm gonna say it again. Relationships are everything in real estate. At Dovehill Capital Management, one of the most interesting things about our track record is that the majority of the deals have come to us off market or lightly marketed. So we had this innovative idea a few years ago, and that was to launch the Deal Rewards Program at Dovehill Capital Management. If you want to learn more, you can go to www.dovehillcoes.com. Again, that's www.dovehillcoes.com. You click on the little Deal Rewards icon and you can sign up. And if you have a deal that's off market, that somehow came to you, maybe you're working on a deal, you're trying to put it together, bring it to us because we can help you get that deal done through our deal rewards program. We offer industry-leading incentives. We'll allow you to co-invest in the deal. We could come up with another interesting structure to allow you to do the deal with us. The deal rewards program is incredibly unique and will give you an opportunity to do a deal with Dove Hill either in a completely passive position, or maybe you're taking a more active role. Either way, please check out the Deal Rewards Program at www.dovehillcoes.com. Appreciate it. And this is how we've been getting our flow. The team at Wurzak Hotel Group is just firing on all cylinders right now. So I'm very, very excited and proud to announce that we now have a third-party management program where we are managing hotels for other owners. We used to just manage hotels for ourselves, and now we've made some tremendous forward investments in people, our team, technology, accounting, finance, and most importantly, culture, and we are prepared to bring that out to everyone. Our team is experienced in managing independent hotels, branded hotels. We have focused heavily on boutique, lifestyle, and experiential hotels, and we're ready to manage a hotel for you. So if you are interested, if you wanna learn more about what we do and how we can help your hotel, please visit wurzakhotels.com. All right, so what I wanna do is discuss preferred equity, both from the perspective of someone who needs preferred equity, and I'm going to refer to those people as common equity, but it might be a GP, but I'm going to refer to those as common equity. And then we're going to talk about it from the perspective of someone who is putting out preferred equity, and I'll talk about that group of people as the preferred equity investor. So from the start, I want to go real basic and then I want to zoom in on some of the concepts and strategies that we use. Maybe I'll hold a couple secrets back, but I'm going to reveal a lot and hopefully you guys get value and we're going to do Q&A at the end. So I'm going to try and burn through everything that I wanted to talk about. So I like to describe preferred equity as supercharged equity. So when you think of any real estate transaction, there is debt and there's equity. Debt gets paid first, and equity gets paid second. Debt can be anyone from a bank to a private lender to private credit. Preferred equity slips right in between debt and equity. So if you think about it like an Oreo cookie, you have the uh, cookie part is the debt and the equity, and then the preferred equity is the cream in the middle. And 
right now is an amazing opportunity to be receiving preferred equity, but also to be investing in preferred equity because there's very few moments in time where preferred equity will pay out such a high equity rate of return with the characteristics of debt. I'm talking about an asymmetrical return. And this is when you have a return that gives you more return for less risk. So you're getting a higher rate of return for what would ordinarily require a lot more risk for less risk, just given the time and the place that we are in today. One of the other key features of preferred equity versus debt is that it has certain control rights, and it might often have certain control rights actually over the common equity. And it's not credit, so it's not debt. It doesn't file a lien on the property. It doesn't take a UCC. It actually fits right into the operating agreement, and it'll be a class of equity alongside the common equity. So it fits right into the operating agreement and there's no intercreditor agreement required. So that's the explanation on what is preferred equity. Let's talk about the difference between MES and preferred equity because I often hear these two concepts confused. Mezzanine financing typically is bridge credit. If the senior lender will only go to a certain leverage point or a certain attachment point, then a lot of people previously had used mezzanine debt to bridge the gap between the amount of equity they have and the amount of debt that they would really like. When you do mezzanine debt, it typically involves a tri-party agreement or an intercreditor agreement. It'll also take a UCC position in your LLC. So if the MES is not paid current and it needs to foreclose, it can stand in the shoes of your common equity. MES typically is more passive than private equity and is basically like a lender. And a lot of the debt and MES shops today are typically private REITs, private credit, private funds. And they're basically a guy or a gal in New York City sitting on Excel, looking through models, analyzing valuations. They're not going to be that strategic like preferred equity could be. They're really just trying to take on a little bit extra risk and get paid for it. The reason why preferred equity is so great is because preferred equity from day one becomes a member of the investment LLC. They're in the deal. So if you're a preferred equity investor, you could serve as a strategic partner, a strategic advisor for the common equity. It'll also give you certain control rights day one, and you can negotiate for whatever control rights you want. That's a negotiable issue, whereas MES typically only has control rights if things go bad. PREF could have control rights if things are going great, and even more control rights if things are going bad. Typically, MES interest is capped. There might be a minimum amount of interest, but the interest rate is capped. With preferred equity, you can structure it in a variety of different ways. It could be capped. It could be paid current. It could be paid not current. Some of it could be paid current. Some of it could be paid not current. But the other awesome thing about preferred equity 
is you can take some back end residual residual value of the deal, just like equity. So where Mez won't participate in any of the upside, preferred equity actually can participate in some of the upside. And again, that's a negotiable issue. The other optionality you have with preferred equity, which comes to the benefit of the common equity, the person taking the equity, is that you can negotiate how the preferred equity is paid. And you can distinguish distributions from operating cash flow and capital event cash flow. So maybe there's a certain split that happens of operating cash flow and the preferred equity only has a liquidation preference, meaning they are paid first once there's a sale or a major capital event, but the common equity can actually participate in some cash flow. And that's probably not going to be an option at all with MES. But again, with preferred equity, there's a lot more flexibility in the structure. The other thing, whether you are investing in preferred equity or you are common equity taking preferred equity, preferred equity is much simpler to structure and get a deal done versus mezzanine financing. For example, we did a preferred equity deal in 2020 and we got that deal done in less than 10 days less than 10 days. We were able to be recognized by the lender and the lender knew we were coming in. We were able to amend the partnership agreement to allow us to come in, but we got that deal done in 10 days. Contrast that to mezzanine financing. Some senior lenders won't even allow mez. Others will make you go through a pretty significant underwriting process and a pretty hefty negotiating process around that intercreditor agreement. That could add a lot of expense and time to the deal. Another thing that we found to be incredibly advantageous is we've done a bunch of these preferred equity deals, so we already have docs in place. So when we're negotiating against a MES lender and the common equity is deciding whether they want to do PREF or maybe MES or higher uh, leverage debt, we already have docs that we can just kind of slip the words into an existing operating agreement for what works for us. And that saves significant time and legal expense. And we found a lot of value towards the deal in being able to come in and do that. I think preferred equity is so interesting right now because the capital markets have basically melted down. As you all know, interest rates have risen. Hopefully, they're kind of flattening out now. It seems like if you follow the yield curves, they're maybe coming down. But the other thing that's happened is the spreads have just blown out. So it's a double whammy. You're getting hit on both ends. So when your senior debt is pricing at very high levels to where debt has priced historically, your PREF equity, even at a lower leverage, a lower last dollar basis, can now charge a higher interest rate or a higher rate of return or structure a deal that will provide for a higher rate of return. And that's the beauty. That's like the holy grail of investing is finding this asymmetrical return. One of my mentors, Dean Adler from Lupert Adler, talks about this all the time. The beauty of asymmetric returns, and you often find this in preferred equity. And right now, now more than ever, you are finding it because while debt is available, a lot of borrowers don't like the price, they don't like the structure, they don't like the uncertainty, preferred equity provides significant benefits that debt and other forms of private credit don't provide. 
The other thing that's going on right now is equity is just a lot harder to raise. There are a lot fewer investors out there. So many people are sitting on the sideline and there are preferred equity investors out there because for a firm like ours, we have a strategy. We have a box and we have committed capital that has basically pre-approved us to invest in predefined strategies. And we are comfortable investing in this environment because we did it during COVID. We are investing in deals that we feel incredibly safe at from a last dollar basis standpoint. How? Because we understand markets. We're typically investing in hospitality because that's our vertical, but we'll do other asset classes in Florida. So without a lot of crazy Excel models and all this fancy underwriting, we are able to think about deals and evaluate the value and a basis in a very logical and historical way and get comfortable with our position. And the rate of return we're able to charge is significant relative to the perceived level of risk that we're taking and our last dollar basis. And that's really how we look at preferred equity. How do we feel about our last dollar basis? And how do we feel about the equity behind us? We'll go into how to think about the capital stack overall, but I've seen preferred equity deals out there where the majority of the equity is preferred equity. And there's like a little bit of common, that's not preferred equity. Preferred equity is where there's mostly common and then a little bit of pref. Those are the deals that I think are really interesting. So let me, at this point, you're kind of understanding what preferred equity is. Some of you already may know a lot more, but let's just do a simple example. And we're going to base this upon today's pricing. So let's say you have an asset today that maybe arguably is valued at $50 million, okay? And you have a $35 million loan coming due. Well, presumably the asset was probably worth at least $60 million two years ago. You have a $35 million loan coming due. Well, what is your lender going to say? We want a pay down of 10 million bucks and we're going to refinance you with a new loan that's 25 million. So they're going to take your $35 million loan down to $25 million because they don't like the leverage. That's what's happening today. So how are you going to fill that $10 million gap? Preferred equity is a great option. And as a preferred equity investor, you really like that option because you're basically going further up in the capital stack, meaning your last dollar basis is getting lower and you're paying down debt. That is like the best use for preferred equity. And that's something that is a focus area of ours and where we always want to invest preferred equity when the loan is getting smaller and we're actually improving our position and putting out preferred equity. So the reason why we would be comfortable putting in that $10 million slug is that's probably at a 70% LTV based on today's value. Not the value that it was 10 year, or two years ago. Based on today's value, we're getting in at a 70% LTV. So we feel really comfortable about that because if asset values rebound, we'll even have a lower leverage point than where we were. And there's still, at 70% LTV, additional coverage of 30% equity behind us so we feel really good. And the reason why you want equity behind you 
is because if there's a problem with the asset, you want the common equity to feel motivated to fund any shortfalls. And one of the key components of our strategy is we always negotiate the ability to contribute more dollars. And we predefine the rate that we're gonna contribute those dollars at. And it's been our experience that people are always reluctant to take preferred equity. They always make it as small as possible. But if everything doesn't go exactly, exactly, exactly to plan, they're gonna need more money. And in our docs, they can't subordinate us with any additional capital. So any new money has to be funded behind us. But let's just say they're in a syndicate and they don't have the ability to raise money from their investors or their investors are tapped out. Well, we'll build in an additional basically line that they can draw down from at a predefined rate. And that line will be typically more expensive than our preferred equity. And depending on how we structure it, it may even sit in front of our preferred equity. So we'll get another bite at the apple. And this is why we've been so open to doing smaller size preferred equity deals. A lot of these big funds out there were only doing preferred equity deals if there was maybe a 20 or $30 million minimum. We said, hey, we're gonna do preferred equity deals between five and 15 million because we believe there's gonna be additional opportunities to fund more capital into the deal at a basis that we like, or maybe there'll be follow-on investments that we can make in that same deal by buying out some of the common at a discount. You know, if the common is not getting a distribution or they're not getting the distributions that they thought, you might have some investors that are looking for liquidity. And the preferred equity could be in a position to buy out some of those common equity investors, still as common equity, but at a discounted position. So we're just adding on to our position and dollar cost averaging out our returns. And that is really enticing because you can take what was a smaller investment, like 10 million bucks, and add another 5 million on it because you're getting into a much larger deal. And based on how we structure these things, the beauty of preferred equity is you're effectively being able to control that deal. So we've been in deals where we put in $8 million and it's a $140 million transaction and we're effectively in a control position for just $8 million. That gives us a lot of flexibility down the road and is another huge advantage to preferred equity because you can't do it to the extent you can with preferred equity that you would be able to do it with MES. So I want to go over a couple of the uses of preferred equity. Some of the uses are to pay down a loan. That's obvious. We went through that in the example. That could be the best use because we're putting in capital to pay down the loan in a position where the previous lender at one point was comfortable with, and now we're getting in at a lower attachment point earning a much higher rate of return. During COVID, at least in the hospitality industry, cash flow dried up and CapEx just went to the wayside. Now, as hospitality is ripping and a lot of travelers are coming back, a lot of hotel owners desperately need to deploy capital into their hotel to fix them up, make certain enhancements. Maybe they're finally getting around to executing the value-add business strategy that they once intended to do. Preferred equity can allow you to do that. Because again, if you have a syndicate or if you have an investor that's tapped out, preferred equity can go towards CapEx. And we think it's a great use for preferred equity because it's enhancing the asset value. So when you might have been getting in at a last dollar basis of let's say 65% or 
whatever million you valued, if you're contributing money to the asset and increasing the value of the asset, well, your position in the deal in the cap stack is improving. So that seems like a great use. Another good use that we've seen and we are always in favor of is interest reserve. So one of the key things preferred equity is typically used is to service interest in a shortfall in a time where interest rates have risen significantly. Preferred in equity was a hot commodity. And we did a lot of deals where a big source of the capital went for an interest reserve. And if we didn't use the interest reserve, well, the money was just sitting there. It could be used towards other things, but it gave the common equity significant comfort that they weren't going to risk losing the asset, that someone's going to be there to cover the interest. Another thing that we've looked at for preferred equity and done is acquisition gap financing. So let's just say that you were doing a deal and it's a $50 million deal and maybe you're going to get $30 million of debt. Well, maybe the most you can raise is $15 million. If you've tapped out all your resources, the most you can scrounge together is $15 million, which is a lot of money, and you have this $5 million shortfall. Well, preferred equity could be a great source for that. And one question you might ask is, well, wait a second, I raised $15 million and my investors maybe weren't aware that preferred equity was going to come into the deal, or maybe they were potentially aware, but how is that going to impact their investment? Well, if your underwriting goes to plan and the investment works out really well, it actually should be more accretive to the common equity because the typical preferred equity structure has a cap on a return or a dilution of the return. So after some sort of level of return to the preferred equity, a lot of that upside or the remaining upside is going to shift to the common equity. So if the deal pans out and everything works out perfectly and you put a preferred equity slug in there, the common equity should actually have a higher return than they would if the deal was just all common equity and there was no preferred equity. So it's an interesting thing to think about And another reason why preferred equity is a good tool, if you are looking to acquire a deal right now and maybe you can't raise the full amount of the equity or your debt proceeds came in a little bit shy of what you had been anticipating. What is preferred equity not used for? It's very rare that we would ever use preferred equity to repatriate existing common equity. It's not a good sign if the common equity is looking to get out and the preferred equity is looking to go in. What do they know about the asset that you don't know as a newcomer coming into the deal? We looked at a deal once where a very wealthy family closed on an asset and they got a lower leverage loan and they had to close, so they closed with all of their own equity And they originally didn't anticipate having all of that equity in the deal because the loan proceeds were actually lower than what they had originally underwritten. In that instance, we would consider because there's significant new equity behind us. We would look at the last dollar basis, get comfortable with it or not, and then evaluate whether they come into the deal. But if you have a deal that went through hard times, that's struggling for cash, definitely we would not use preferred equity to pay off common equity. So I wouldn't recommend anyone else to do that. 
And if you are thinking about structuring a deal, then I would not think about that as an option unless you're willing to let go of some of that common equity at a significant discount that makes it compelling for the preferred equity to come in and do the deal. But just to buy the common equity at par and put in preferred equity is not something that we would do. And if we would even consider it, it would have to be at a very low basis with significant common equity behind us. I want to talk about the structure. And this is really where the magic happens and how we're able to get deals and how we're able to find these preferred equity deals. The reality is all of our pref equity deals came from our relationships. We have something at Dove Hill called the Deal Rewards Program. And that's on our website. You can go and sign up and register. If you have a deal, whether it's your own deal or another deal or a deal you're invested in or a friend's deal, and you think it needs preferred equity, go fill out your form on the Deal Rewards Program. We provide industry-leading incentives. We'll provide opportunities to co-invest. Depending on how involved you are in the deal, we can come up with a, a different structure potentially. But all these deals that we did during COVID came through our relationship network. And we were able to gain traction because we had a flexible program. We had discretionary capital. We could move quickly. We were a strategic partner. That's key. Remember that. And we also had docs that worked and we knew how to get these deals done. The other thing, particularly around COVID or now in another asset class, is we can negotiate with a lender as a preferred equity investor in ways the common equity can't because the lender is looking at us like the white knight coming in to save the day if there's some sort of operating shortfall or there's a debt service issue. And we can really be an ally in negotiations with the lender. And in a lot of the preferred equity deals that we did, we were successful in negotiating with the lender on behalf of the common equity to extend out the loan, which benefited us and the common equity and enabled us to do the deal. The biggest competitive advantage that we have is that we are a strategic partner. We are not an analyst just banging away at a keyboard, throwing numbers into Excel. We operate hotels. We operate real estate. We know how to structure deals, and we know what makes sense for the common equity and what doesn't. And ultimately, we want the common equity to succeed because we're doing these preferred equity deals for the asymmetrical risk return that they're offering. If we have to step in and start managing these assets and take over deals, well, that's increasing the risk for us. And that's not our top priority. Our top priority is that it's a successful deal for us and a successful deal for the common equity. And we typically won't get into a deal in a predatory relationship where we think the common equity is heavily impaired. Because in those situations, the common equity still might have day-to-day control and the incentives are wildly different. We want aligned incentives despite the different return profile that we might have as the preferred equity investor. The other thing that we're able to offer is flexibility. We got really good at being able to structure the different terms that we consider important, and we value all the terms together. So they're like little levers. So maybe we'll pull this one, but this one's going to increase, or we'll pull that one and this one's going to increase, vice versa. And there are a couple things that are really important to us that we are going to stick to but there's other things that we have flexibility on. And a MES lender just doesn't have that amount of flexibility, but with preferred equity, you do have 
a lot of flexibility. So let's talk about some of the specific terms that are going to make it into every one of our term sheets and how we think about each one of those terms. We'll get to one example, and then we're going to go into Q&A. So size. We talked a little bit about this, but the most important thing we think about in size is, are we comfortable with our last dollar basis? We look at historical comps. We look at in-place cash flow. We look at what the yield is. We look at replacement costs. We look at everything you would look at when you're buying an investment, but we don't overcomplicate it. And we only get into a deal where we think that we're money good today. So we size the pref accordingly. The other thing that I'll say is we also are very cognizant of the current value we're placing on the common equity, and we don't want the pref to far exceed that. And preferably be less than that is where we'd want to be. The rate. We're at a time where rates are pretty high, but rates are flexible and they're not all created equally. You could have a current rate. You could have a rate that's accruing. It could be on a simple basis. It could be on an IRR basis. Just FYI, all of our deals are on an IRR basis. The other thing we do that's incredibly important because you don't want to be viewed as a short-term lender is we have minimum multiples on all of our deals. We're not a bank. Don't come to us if you need a three-month bridge loan. It's not worth it for me to raise the capital. I have a fund structure. We raise money, sometimes deal by deal with Coinvest. I'm not interested in being in a deal for three months and earning a 10 or 15% return. That's not why we're doing this. We are investing in properties based on the residual value that we think will appreciate over the long term. And we will typically structure minimum multiples anywhere from 1.7 to 2, depending on the term. And we'll structure it as the greater of an IRR or the minimum multiple. So if the common equity finds a reason to take us out earlier, that's fine. We're happy about it, but they got to pay the minimum multiple. The other thing that we will specifically lay out in the term sheet is distributions. So we think of distributions in two ways. Distributions of operating cash flow, how are those treated, and distributions at a sale or major capital event. And typically, the thing that's most important with preferred equity is a liquidation preference. And what that is, is at a sale or a capital event, 100% of the available cash needs to go to pay down the press return. Where you do have flexibility is in the cash flow. And that really makes the common equity that, well, let me put it this way. It really solves problems for the common equity because it keeps their investors motivated if they're getting some cash flow along the way. It makes them feel good about the deal, but it also helps to pay our return throughout the deal as the PREF investor. So we're not rating on 100% of the return at the end. We've also done preferred equity where we sweep 100% of the cash flow and then we get 100% of the return at a sale or a capital event. But maybe as a result of that, our rate is a little bit lower. If we're going to be sharing in some of the distribution, maybe our rate is higher because we're taking on slightly more risk. Again, it goes back to those levers where you're pulling one and maybe increasing another and pulling one back a little bit. Term. One of the things you need to think about is the fact that you don't want to get stuck in a deal forever. So we always have term limits on our pref equity deals that gives us, the preferred investor, the right to force a sale 
after a certain amount of time. Because the deals that we're investing in, they're either going to work or they're not work. And we think they're always going to work for the preferred equity. But again, we want the common equity to get paid too. So we want to give an appropriate amount of time. Typically, we found that to be three to five years. And if things aren't going well, we want to get out of the the deal and the the time threshold has kicked in, then we're going to have the ability to force a sale. We're not going to need to do anything special. It's already in the docs. And if we want to be taken out, if someone wants to take us out earlier, well, we have a minimum multiple there to protect us as well. The other thing I'll mention is a key term is governance. You have to think about major decisions. You have to think about day to day. You have to think about what's important and what's not. And typically for us, we want to look at the financials. We want to approve the budget. We want to have access to all the information, but we're not going to be making day-to-day decisions, but we do want to be able to make strategic decisions like a significant equity investor would. We also typically want to be recognized by the lender, and oftentimes many loan docs will require any amendments of operating agreements have to get signed off by the lender anyways. So part of that recognition process is actually achieved when you're presenting the new operating agreement with the PREF to the lender, because you are becoming a member of the LLC. That's how PREF equity works. We are going in to the entity that owns the property alongside the common equity, not alongside them from a return standpoint, but as an investor in the deal, just a different class of investor. The other key, key thing, and we made a mistake on this on one deal actually, is that you need to make very clear as a preferred equity investor, that you can never be subordinated from either common equity, equity, debt, mez, anything. No new money can come into the deal from any source in front of you because you need to be secure that your last dollar basis is not going to push out. That is key. So if a new lender comes along and they can give more proceeds, well, they're going to need your approval because you have a cap on the amount of money that can be in front of you. If the common equity wants to fund additional money behind, that's fine. They could fund as much of that as possible. And we'd love that because it's in second position to us or third position or fourth position. And uh, that's a great thing. And it only means the common equity believes in the deal. So now I want to go to, I've got like a term sheet right here. So I'll, I'll give you a live example. So we did a deal in uh, New York. This was 2020, like the heart of COVID. We invested preferred equity in a hotel in New York City. It was a uh, family that owned the hotel, great partners, and they don't have a lot of hotel experience. And we were really relied upon as a strategic partner. And we helped them negotiate with their franchisor, their manager, and the lender. We got a special deal with the lender. We got the lender to extend. We got some great rights from the lender. We had to put up an interest reserve, which we were totally fine with. And the structure of this deal, we put up basically, I'm looking right now, $11 million. And we have very specific ways that the money can be used. So it's not just, hey, we're giving you $11 million. You can use it however you want. We need to improve how the money is being used. So there's categories of how the money can be used. And in this deal, the Common equity has kind of a very, very long-term hold strategy for this investment. So they aren't really planning on selling. They're planning on refining us out. 
So in this deal, our return was basically capped and it was capped almost at 20%. So it was a very high return to us. But the family felt that over time, their IRR, their multiple would far exceed our capped return and they were willing to take the risk. So in this deal, we don't share any cash flow with them. All the cash flow comes to us. And at a sale or refi, all of the cash flow, all of the return of the capital plus their return first comes to us and then it was would go to them. And then at that point, we're basically out of the deal. And we also gave them the ability to buy us out of the deal. But we kept, I'm looking at it now, we kept a small residual piece above a very high sale number. So one of the things that we negotiated is if they bought us out of the deal, that we had a one year basically look back. So if they ended up selling, if they bought us out and then sold the deal a year later, we could participate in some of that upside if it hit the threshold, which we had the ability to participate in. And this was important to us. So we, we built that in, but we knew that it was important to them to be able to buy us out at any time. And we didn't want them playing games where they you know, knew they could sell it for X and buy us out for Y, and then we don't get a piece of that, that residual. In this deal, we also had a minimum multiple. As I said, the minimum multiple is key. And at a certain point, when you're in the deal for long enough, the IRR prevails over the minimum multiple. And in this deal, we're coming very close to that point now. We have certain governance rights that I talked about that were important, but that was the specific deal. And in this deal, we've returned, I think, almost 60% of our initial investment. So it's been a tremendous, tremendous home run. So about a year ago, I created this hospitality investing masterclass because like nothing like it existed. And the first version was like a beta test. And I got some feedback from folks and we're relaunching it. And the main thing that we're changing is we're doing twice monthly Zoom calls with me or people from my team. So the biggest thing that I learned from doing the masterclass is there was some great information there. People learned a lot. There's very actionable information. There's tools. There's resources that we provide. But ultimately, people want the dialogue like we're having today. So the deal rewards program, as I mentioned, all of our deal flow from our preferred equity program came from our relationships. So we've doubled down on the deal rewards program. And if you have good access to deals, but maybe can't put a deal together or don't have the capital, don't have the resources, maybe you're a broker, maybe you're in a deal, whatever it is, we will incentivize you to bring us the deal if we do it. We'll pre-negotiate a structure that makes sense. If you're really involved, if you're not involved, whatever it is, scan the QR code or just go to dovehillcos.com and then click on deal rewards. You can sign up and register but it's a great program and that's how we've gotten a lot of the deal flow. Shameless plug time is off and I want to turn it into some Q&A now, actually. <laughs> Someone asked, how do I co-invest with you? Um, if you're interested in investing with Dove Hill, just go check out dovehillcos.com. You were talking about terms um, for length and then minimum multiples. Uh, but not wanting to do something like a, a bridge for 15%. What if someone used it for the acquisition financing on a bridge basis, but constantly put it in new deal after new deal at 15% for the next five years? 
which then would hit your 2x multiple. Um, would would something like that work? Well, I think 15% is a little light. We are all our deals were actually higher than that. They're um, high teens and in the 20s. But I think it's an interesting concept, actually. What I would say is for us to consider that we'd want to essentially underwrite each deal. And one of the other things that we'd be cognizant of is just minimizing transactional costs and time on our team. So that would be another thing that we would think about. But I think it's a really good concept. We're, we're doing a deal right now where we made an offer on a deal right now where someone's under construction on a hotel. The lady is very confident that she can take us out in a year, basically. We don't think it's as likely, but she is very confident. So in that deal, we actually proposed, okay, we're going to lower the minimum multiple if you do take us out in nine to 12 months. But if you don't, after 12 months, it just goes back to the higher multiple. So we're kind of making the bet, well, if we don't get paid off, then we're happy with our minimum multiple. But in the off chance she does take us out early, we're still really comfortable with the minimum multiple and the actual dollars that we make on the deal is worth our while. We did a deal during COVID where we bought a note actually, and we bet that the borrower, the debt was pretty good. We bet the borrower would want to keep us in for a while. It was on the Ace Hotel in Brooklyn, an awesome hotel. And that hotel opened and it performed so well that much to our surprise, the borrower just paid us off. And we were getting like 14%, but the multiple just sucked. It was like a one point you know, one or 1.2 after you like took out some costs and things like that. And over a year or two years, it would have been great. But over six months, you know, the actual dollars we made, like relative to our investment, were just small. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think there's definitely uh, something here. So you, you let me know what uh, what what works for you yeah. all. And I, I can, uh, there's plenty of yield to to go around in the extended stay business. So uh, there, there's- yeah, we're going to, we're going to talk, Michael. Michael um, owns extended stay hotels. And I actually think this is a big opportunity because it's it's essentially the way that Michael runs it, and, and we haven't spoken in a little bit, but as I remember it, it's like an extension of workforce housing. So he's running it less like a hotel and more like workforce housing. So you have, whether it's you know migrant workers or people that are coming in, maybe like traveling nurses or people coming in for a construction job that obviously don't want to commit to a six-month lease or a year lease in an apartment, and maybe a typical hotel is too expensive, the way that Michael's structuring these deals is for that category and tends to be at the lower end, which is actually quite interesting because a lot of these hotels that Michael's looking at are deflagged, like former extended stay hotels, like extended stay America, or maybe a residence in something like that. So still a great box, but for whatever reason, maybe it couldn't keep up with the brand. And given the housing shortage, I think it's a really cool use if you're able to minimize your costs. So Michael, that's a little plug for you, but I think it's a great space right now. One quick question. You, you mentioned that New York City deal and that one of the terms was the 11 million that you put up had to be used how you wanted. Uh, what kind of areas did you want that money to be used in? Yeah, so I brought the term sheet because and I would forget it was like done in 2020. Here are the areas. So the majority of the money went 
to an operating shortfall slash interest reserve. So this was money that we funded to the common equity. We saw the balance sheet every month and you know we're doing pretty significant deals where there's not gonna be anything nefarious going on. And frankly, if there is, we have immediate rights to take over. So part of the government's includes just someone does something bad, you as the common equity or you as the preferred equity have a very easy way to step in and take over. The other use was paying off forbearance. So during COVID, maybe some of you other real estate guys are going to be going through this now, but we were, us hotel guys were asking for things like forbearance. And basically that was a pause in paying interest. And it would typically be pushed out a couple of years or maybe balloon at the term of the loan. So the lender is part of some stuff that the lender gave us, mostly in term extension, we paid down their forbearance. So that was one of the uses. The other use was uh, FF&E reserve add back. So hospitality builds up FF&E reserve to maintain the hotel for CapEx purposes. And during COVID, a lot of borrowers asked the lender if they could use the FF&E reserve to fund operating shortfalls. So part of the money was to replenish the FF&E reserve, which we liked because then that money could be used to reinvest into the asset. And that has to get approved by the lender. So we felt really comfortable about having that money in there. The next bucket was our cost, the preferred investor cost, acquisition fee, legal expenses, deal fees, whatever it was, we're, uh, my company is not paying those sorts of costs. So all of the costs get thrown into the deal and are paid by the deal. That's that's really important. I mean, if if you're doing a deal, make sure you're not just like paying for these costs yourself and your costs are impacting your returns. The cost should be a cost of the deal. And that would include the common equities costs as well. So if they have you know legal reviewing the documents, that should go into the deal. But now common equities costs, you know, wouldn't include, you know, the sponsor's G-Wagon that's on the thing, right? So you got to be specific as to what the deal costs are. And all these things would get typically sorted out at the closing. And the closing is very typical to a real estate closing. We'd have actually, a, we'd bring down the title and we'd get a investor's title policy. That's another thing I'd recommend. You can actually get an investor policy where you get a title company, they'll do a title search, just like you're buying the real estate because you are investing into the real estate. So you have to make sure there's no liens other than the loan or other than something else you wouldn't have already known about and you can buy a policy. So that's also something we've done. So uh, when you're going into the uses of PREF, um, I think we went over about three of them. Generally, the uses were in situations where you're coming into an existing I think all three of them were were situations where you're coming to an existing deal uh, and you're inserting pref uh, in some kind of fashion into the existing stack. Is there ever a situation where uh, you would strategically use pref? Uh, and I think you I think you touched on. It. I think you're talking. You gave one story about how. Um, well, I guess this was after the acquisition that the one lady that you uh, were talking about brought in pref right after the acquisition because they put out too much equity. So is there a situation where you would structure PREF in the the beginning of the deal? You know, Yeah, for acquisition gap financing. No, I actually think it makes a lot of sense. So 
let's say, um, you know, I think I gave an example. If you're buying a $50 million deal and you get $35 million, uh, or let's, well, let's normalize. Let's say you get $30 million of debt and you've raised $15 million of equity. Maybe you thought you could get 35 million. Maybe you tapped out all your friends and resources and people that you know, and all you could get is 15 million. And there's this $5 million gap. That's a great opportunity for preferred equity to come in on an acquisition basis. The preferred equity is still going to be in front of all the common equity. And I'd recommend you disclose that to your common equity investors. But the reason why the common equity investors might like that is they would look at it just like additional leverage. Sure, it's going to cost more, but I'm going to give you an example. Let's say the deal is underwritten to be a 24% IRR. It's a screamer deal, an amazing deal. Maybe my the cost of my preferred equity based on whatever structure we negotiate is a 19% IRR, and I'm only $5 million of the equity. Well, that means that I'm capping off somewhere around a 19% IRR. The 5% of extra IRR from the 19 to the 24 now all goes to the common equity. So their returns in a deal that was originally underwrote, underwritten at a 24% IRR is actually going to increase. So it could be accretive to them. So you could use it as almost a different tranche of equity. Maybe you also have two categories of investors. So maybe you have some investors that would prefer to get a lower, slightly lower return, but take a little bit less risk. You could have two classes of investors. I know a lot of sponsors and GPs that do this. One thing that I'm always cognizant of, though, in doing that is confusing investors. They might get in a situation where like, ah, I don't know which one I'm going to do. Or you might get people that are like, all want to be in the one tranche, not the other tranche, and then you still have a shortfall. So those are things you have to think about. But it's definitely an option. And if you structure it the right way, it could actually be beneficial in a significant way to the common equity. How, what is the, um, the pricing difference? I guess an, another alternative, obviously, is you could bring some sort of mez. Um, what, how would you think about the trade-off between doing the prep versus the mez then in that situation? Typically, mez isn't going to be strategic at all. And a lot of mez lenders today their primary goal is to take over the asset. As a preferred equity investor, that's just not my goal. I'd rather just simplify my life. So the one thing that I would say is the MEZ isn't going to be strategic. And we are a very strategic investor and would add significant value to the deal. The other thing is MEZ will typically require you to pay 100% of the interest current or a portion of the interest current. We've done many preferred equity deals where there is no current pay. So when there's cash available, you pay the PREF. Common equity and GPs love this because there's not a you know collar or a noose around their neck where they feel so much pressure to generate all this extra cash flow just to satisfy the MES, which has to be paid current in full or in part. So that's another big reason and a big difference between preferred equity and MES is the the current pay on the rate of return. Question one, as you mentioned, when you set 
set out to invest in PREF, you have a clear use of the capital. Um, one of them that you mentioned is like CapEx requirements. And I was just wondering if, if are you seeing in the hotels that you invest in or just in the market in general, if these branded hotels are starting to kind of re-implement their PIP requirements and kind of major CapEx spend? I know that they paused it a little bit. And if you hit this before, then I'll you know rewatch the entire thing. But that, that was my first question. And then I have a very quick follow-up after. I'll come to you on the follow-up. Let me ask the first answer the first one. I didn't specifically address this, and you bring up a great point. A hundred percent the brands are now saying, hey, all the renovations that we kind of didn't let you do or didn't force you to do during COVID, yeah, you need to do those now. So from a GP's perspective or a common equities perspective, they may not have the ability to fund that. Maybe their common equity investors are all tapped out. Maybe they don't want to have any more exposure to the deal. There can be a hundred reasons why, but it's a great use for PREF because we're coming in now ahead of all the common and enhancing the asset, enhancing the hotel. It doesn't have to just be hotels. It could be any deferred maintenance on any asset that was paused due to the economy or the lending environment or whatever it was. Gotcha. Thank you. That that's very helpful. And then my second question is: other than Dove Hill, of course, uh, what are some like the bigger players to kind of keep an eye out on the space right now? Are there any specific shops or partnerships that you've kind of seen pop up either in press releases or just through your your extensive network? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have said they do preferred equity, but I don't know that there's many groups that have done as many deals as we have. I'm sure there are some. Lupert Adler is a great firm that we've worked with a number of times, and they are huge believers in this strategy. So I'd, I'd expect more deals from those guys. And um, there's some other equity investors that are now starting to dip their toes in. But the benefit of us is the fact that we've done it multiple times. And we might have made one or two mistakes here and there so that we can bring that value to the common equity and save them significant dollars because we have docs we can already use. We understand the process. We know what works and what doesn't work. And we can point to specific deals that we've done. Guys, this was awesome. It's not going to be the last time I do this. Thanks a lot for joining me. Hope you got value. I certainly did. And I appreciate everyone. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Thank you.